Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning and uh, welcome again to GBC. If I don't know you, my name's Daniel Ernest and uh, I'm excited to get to preach to you today. We're going to be continuing on in our series through Joshua. So uh, if you've got your Bible, if you would, please go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 7. Uh, we are going to cover the whole chapter today. I figured since all of you have an extra hour of sleep, we can go through the whole thing. Uh, by the way, when you've got little kids, they don't get the daylight savings thing. Like, my kids were still up at 6 a.m. this morning. So, uh, anyways, the rest of you probably got an extra hour of sleep. So we're going to go through the whole thing. And uh, as you turn there, I want to remind you sort of where we are. Uh, Israel is, is coming off a huge victory at Jericho. We saw this last week. God caused uh, the walls to come tumbling down with, with nothing more than like a, a brass marching band and a pep rally. And, and then Israel's army, after the walls come down, uh, they go into the city and they devote the entire thing, everyone and everything in it, to destruction, just as the Lord had instructed them. Like this is complete and total domination. And given how easy it was, and given really that we've seen nothing but success as we've started out in the book of Joshua, you might assume that it's just going to be chapter and chapter of victory after victory after victory. But then you get to chapter 7, verse one, and it sort of serves as a slap in the face. It's going to correct, uh, quickly correct that assumption. So, so take a look. We're just going to read verse 1 of Joshua chapter 7. It says this, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Okay, like I said, you're sort of expecting so much winning you get tired of winning, but then you get to chapter seven and, and this is not what you're expecting. Like, how did we go from the Lord bringing down the walls, the, the, the Lord parting the waters, Israel crossing through to at the very beginning of chapter 7, the Lord's anger burned against the people of Israel. How did we get here? This is a pretty huge shift, right? Well, we're told that a guy named Achan took some of the devoted things. And, and just as a reminder, in chapter 6, as Joshua was giving instructions to the people as they were about to sack the city of Jericho, he was explicit in saying that the spoils of war, things like gold, silver, bronze, iron, he said those things were meant to be devoted things. In other words, they were meant to be given to God. They weren't meant to be taken. And yet, we read, that's exactly what Achan does. And as we get started, I think that's pretty significant. But what we see in this first verse is that even amongst God's chosen people, people who have seen the, the waters part, people who have seen the walls come down, these people who have a, a proven record of, of faithfulness, even here, sin still remains. The desire to do the exact opposite of what God requires, it's still present. And I think that's incredibly relevant for us, for, for you and me. Because it doesn't matter how, how long you've been a Christian, 
doesn't matter how disciplined you are. It doesn't matter that you go to a, a great church or that you come from a great family or that you have great community, that you're a part of some really neat things that God is doing here at GBC. Israel's story, Achan's sin, it teaches us that no one, not one of us, is beyond our sin. Like we can never afford to think, oh, I've overcome those sins. Ah, I'm stronger than that temptation. It's, it's not really a, a threat to me anymore. No, you need to remember, I need to remember, sin lurks in the shadows, and we can't afford to ignore it. We, we can't afford to let it fester. We have to be constantly diligent because we're about to see whether we want it to or not, sin has the capacity not just to destroy our own lives, but also the lives of other people, the lives of the people around us. That's what we're going to see in verses 2 through 9. Look there with me. Joshua 7, 2. Again, I'm going to read through verse 9. It says this. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Okay, so one thing you have to realize is that even though we, the, the, the readers, we already know about Achan and his sin, even though that comes in verse 1, which is clearly before verses 2 through 9, Joshua doesn't know yet. Okay, Israel doesn't know that, and, and that sort of explains, it doesn't justify, but it explains some of their reaction. Okay, that said, but before I read, I mentioned that sin is capable of destroying not just your life, my life, but also sin has the capacity to destroy the lives of other people. And in these verses, we see that in two ways. Okay, the first is overt, you, you, you can't miss it. But the second, it was a bit more subtle. I want to start with the first. In verses 4 and 5, after Israel scouted Ai, we're told that a detachment of men were sent to attack the city, and basically, we don't really know what happens, but it goes absolutely horribly. Like, they get defeated immediately. And as they're running away, retreating, 36 of the soldiers that were sent, they're killed, and this causes quite a stir in the camp. Hey, look at the end of verse 5. It says, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. In other words, they're devastated. They're terrified. 
And then in verse 6, we see that this reaction, it's not just limited to the people. We're told that Joshua and all the leadership of Israel, we're told that they, they tear their clothes, that they fall to the ground, put their faces to the ground, they, they put dust on their heads. This is extreme, intense mourning, desperation, despair. And at first, like, I'll be honest, when I read through this, that kind of seems a bit dramatic. Like, this is war. 36 soldiers isn't that much. But you've got to know, that's 36 more than died at Jericho. So this is a big deal. And the people react this way because it represents the idea, it represents the possibility that Israel could be defeated. Like, it's starting to settle in on them that they are not invincible. And also, this shows us something important about sin. You see, one of the worst lies we can believe about sin is that we can keep its consequences to ourselves. We think that we'll be the only ones, if anyone, affected. Like, isn't that what Achan thought? Didn't he think, I can, I can take some of this. I know I'm not supposed to, but like, no big deal. It won't affect anyone else. Y'all, so many of us are just like Achan. We think our sin is private. We, we think we can keep our sin a secret. We think we can uh, just allow our sin to, to begin and end with us. We think it's not a big deal. It didn't really hurt anyone else. No one else needs to know about this. This happens all the time. We think this way with inward sins, sins like anxiety, Jealousy, pride, greed, bitterness, anger. What we think, it's not a big deal if I feel this way, if I, if I think this way. It's not going to affect my spouse, my kids, my coworkers, my friends. I'm just going to keep this to myself. Just as commonly, we think this way with sins that we commit when no one else is around, when no one else sees. Watching pornography, drinking excessively, gambling irresponsibly. Again, we think, no one else needs to know about this. I'm only hurting myself. I, I, can, I can stop this at any time. Listen, with all of these things, I hope you see, I hope the 36 dead Israelites remind you, when you sin, when I sin, we sin as members of a community, even when we sin alone. And it might take a while. It may not be instantaneous, but our sin, listen, our sin will always end up affecting the people around us. Always. There is no getting around it. Like I said, sin has the capacity to destroy the lives of other people. Here, it certainly does. There's a, a straight line from Achan's sin to these 36 dead soldiers. But like I said, there's a more subtle a less obvious way we, sin, we see sin's effect in the community. I want you to think back to verses two and three. Okay, what we see there, fresh off the victory at Jericho, Joshua follows the usual procedure. Okay, and there's a lot of similarity in this narrative and the one that preceded Jericho. In both places, remember, Joshua sends two spies. The spies come back, they give a report, and then Joshua formulates his strategy. Lots of similarity. But the thing is, there's one key difference. 
You see, at Jericho, the timing, the strategy, it didn't come from Joshua. It came directly from God. But this time, the whole approach to AI, it it proceeds without a thought toward God, like God's not mentioned at all. And the impression that you get is that the assistance of God seems to have been assumed. It was expected, presumed. Like they didn't pursue God at all. And that's only underscored by the attitude of the spies in verse 3, right? Do you remember what they said? They were like, oh, hey, look, Joshua, AI is not a problem. They're so few. They're so pathetic. We can send a couple of units, two or three. We don't need to bother sending the whole army. It'll be done quick. Basically, what they say is, anyway, God's on our team. Like, it'll be no sweat. And it's not just the spies that we see this attitude. Even Joshua, after the battle is lost, we talked about his despair, his mourning. But did you notice what he said? Did you notice where he subtly placed the blame? He he doesn't look at his own heart or, or the hearts of the people. He assumes it was God's fault. He assumes that this was God's failure. In verses 7 through 9, he essentially says, God led us across the Jordan only to be defeated. He says, it's over. Our enemies are laughing at us, and they're going to take us, and it's all God's fault. And do you catch the irony in that? Remember, Joshua didn't seek God's direction before the battle. He simply assumed, he thought, obviously, God will be with us. He'll fight for us. But now that the battle is lost, he's amazed that God could be so indifferent. Like, could there be a better example of entitlement, of presumption? And I'd say, of all people, this is shocking to see in Joshua. But the reality is, this inclination to presume on God, how often do I do this? How often do you? Assume that that God is on your side. Presume that he's going to back our play, that he'll endorse our plan. And then when God doesn't sort of rubber stamp our agendas, we're heartbroken. We're astonished. We're hurt at what we too quickly assume is God's indifference, his cruelty. This is the exact thing we're seeing with Israel's leadership. Not one of them, not one of them stopped to think that it might be their fault that they might be the source of their defeat. Not one of them look inwardly. No, they immediately begin to shake their fists at God. And big picture, this is the other way, the more subtle way personal sin affects the community. What we see here is that sin spreads. It's infectious. It's like a disease. It spills over into the lives of other people. Accommodations get made, blind eyes are turned, habits and patterns then get created. You see, Achan's sin, though it was his mistake, it was aided and abetted by an atmosphere of passivity, of arrogance. Like other people had to turn a blind eye for him to do what he did, to take the devoted things. And this should serve as a warning to us. So many of us, and I am squarely included in this, we have a a cavalier attitude towards sin. We sort of shrug and ignore it. We even indulge socially accepted sins. We see something in ourselves or something in someone else, and we think, ah, 
that's not that big of a deal, or, oh, that's their problem. I don't want to put my nose in their business. But listen, you need to understand the church, God's people, it's not just a charitable organization like the Red Cross. This is not like a social club, like your, your, your country club. No, by its nature, the church, our church is something different. We are brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. We're knit together by the Spirit. We are not independent. We are interdependent. That's what we're seeing here. And because of that, yes, we have to diligently fight our own sin, but also, just as importantly, we have to seek the spiritual welfare of one another. We have to confront each other. We have to come alongside each other, call each other to a better way. Because if we don't, as we've seen with Achan, as we've seen with Israel, your sin, my sin, if we allow it to be overlooked, unaddressed, if we allow it time to fester, time to spread, it has the capacity, your sin, my sin, to damage this entire church. It can get in the way of our our mission, of our trying to make disciples who transform the world. This is so important. We we have to get this right. Now, having focused on the corporate consequences of Achan's sin, this next section, and I'm going to read it in two chunks. The next section will deal with Achan individually. I want to start by reading verses 10 through 21. And as we start, remember, Joshua and the elders are, are still on their faces. And then God interrupts them in verse 10. Look at it with me. Verse 10 starts. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have, de- they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver, 
underneath. All right, let's review. In verse 10, I love this. God looks down. He sees Joshua on his face and he says, get up. It's like he's, he's fed up with Joshua and the leadership's prayer. And then in verses 11 and 12, the bomb drops. God tells Joshua what happened. He tells him that someone has stolen and lied. Someone has broken covenant. And then he tells Joshua that they, all of Israel, will be devoted for destruction unless the perpetrator and the stolen goods are destroyed. Okay, so, so Joshua sort of instantaneously changes hats. He goes from intercessor to, to pleading with God to now he's acting as a judge. And in verses 14 and 15, God outlines the process by which he will identify the culprit. And y'all, it is slow and painful. Okay, essentially, Joshua would cast lots in front of the whole nation. By the way, they went to sleep the night before knowing that this was going to happen. He basically rolls a dice and it would progressively narrow down from, from nation to tribe to clan to family and then finally to an individual. Can you imagine this? The, the drama, the suspense. So the next morning... Joshua begins the process in verse 16, and slowly the winnowing down happens. Slowly they move through tribe, clan, family, until finally Achan is selected in verse 18. And the thing I find so interesting, striking even, is that the whole time, which this would have taken a long time, Achan says nothing. Like the noose is gradually tightening around his neck, and yet he never steps forward. He, he stays completely silent. And by the way, that's very telling. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've seen this in your kids before, this is a, a common mark of someone who is unrepentant. Meaning, when someone lacks remorse, when they're not really contrite, they don't volunteer. They don't confess. And really, they only come clean when they're caught, and they're doing so because they hope to lessen or to mitigate the consequences. Like, that's what's happening here. Achan is caught, and at last, he admits what he's done. And in verse 21, he gives us an incredibly clear picture of temptation. We won't fully examine it, but glance back at verse 21. He says... I saw, and then later he says, I coveted, I desired, and at last he says, I took. He says, I saw, I coveted, and I took. This is all too familiar, right? This is what we see in the garden with Eve in Genesis 3. If you're in a community group, this is what you saw in James 1. This is how temptation works. Everyone in this room knows this progression. One step leads to the next until we've gone too far. And for Aiken, this downward spiral has disastrous consequences. We're going to see it play out in verses 22 through 26. Look there. This is Joshua's response to Aiken's confession. Verse 22 says, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, 
it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took him out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Okay. After confirming Achan's confession, Joshua sentences him to death, and not just Achan, I'm sure you heard, all of his house, all the things that he owned. And in verse 25, the the people stoned them to death, and then they burned them. And then, to ensure that no one would ever forget, in verse 26, they mark their graves and call the place Achor, which is a play on Achan's name. It means trouble, because like Joshua said in verse 25, the Lord brought trouble to Achan because he had brought trouble to Israel. Now this scene is pretty intense, right? Like, what in the world can we learn from such a gruesome scene? Stoning, burning. Doesn't it seem a little over the top? Like, wasn't there another way? a more civilized way? Couldn't they have just like banished them? What I want to do is I want to point out two things that we have to learn from the ending of this story. Okay, first, I hope this ending, the intensity, the heaviness, I hope it sends a message loud and clear that sin, all sin, is serious. Like there are no little sins. There are no inconsequential sins. We get so confused about this because we compare ourselves to each other. We think, oh, I don't do what he does. Oh, I'm way better than than she is. I don't do that. I would never be caught doing that. That's a totally wrong mentality, you see, because God is holy. And because he is perfectly, infinitely holy, All sin is worthy not just of punishment, but of eternal damnation. So when you sin in any way, you don't just make an oopsie, like a mistake. No, you commit cosmic treason against the creator of the universe, and you deserve, I deserve, a penalty far worse than Achan's. And by the way, make no mistake, This episode in Joshua 7, we can't just sort of write it off. We can't think like, oh, this is Old Testament God. You know, he got a little angry sometimes. Like, if you think that, go read Acts 5. That's the New Testament. That's after Jesus. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they basically do the same thing that Achan does. And what do you think God does to respond? Again, in the New Testament, he strikes them dead on the spot. Like, God doesn't change. His view of sin doesn't soften this side of the cross. 
Sin was and will always be deadly for the sinner, for you and me, and also, like we talked about earlier, like we saw with the rest of Achan's family, it's deadly for the people around us. So what do we do? In response, we we have to be serious in dealing with sin. But we can't toy with it or dabble in it, try to hide it. No, the Bible calls us to forsake it to renounce it. Because one day, a judgment worse than Achan's, a judge worse than Joshua, is coming. And in that day, there will be no hiding. There will be no burying in the sand. Your sins will be laid bare, and you will be called to answer for them for eternity. So I want to ask you, is there anything hidden under your tent Is there a secret sin in your life? You've excused it, maybe minimized it, justified it, relativized it. You thought, well, what's the big deal? I'm not hurting anyone. I've got this under control. I can stop this at any time. Look, if that's you, I hope the story of Achan, I hope Joshua 7 shows you that you cannot, you will not hide your sin forever. I hope you feel compelled for your sake, but also for all of ours, to confess, to repent, to turn away. So the first thing from this ending, I hope you see how serious sin is. But the second thing we have to learn from this story, it came in the middle of verse 26, and And sort of given what surrounds it, it's really easy to miss. Look back at verse 26, right in the middle. It says, Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. The Lord turned from his burning anger. Now, what turned the anger of God away? Why did he do this? It was Achan's death, right? Achan's death meant Israel was spared. By one man's death, the judgment, the wrath of God was satisfied. And in this, we're presented, you and me, in this grim, bleak message about sin, we are presented with a door of hope. You see, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus, God himself, became a man and bore God's judgment. He died a gruesome death, worse than stoning and burning. He died on a cross. He absorbed the burning anger of God, all so that we could be spared, all so that you and I wouldn't be devoted to destruction, all so that when we confess, when when you confess whatever you were thinking about earlier, when we come clean about the things that we'd rather keep hidden in the dark, Jesus died so that we can be assured, we can know that we're forgiven. The door of hope is that by the death of one man, Jesus, we can be washed clean. We can be forgiven. It's amazing news. Unbelievable. So to conclude, in the end, we all have a choice. You'll either be judged, condemned like Achan, stoned and burned and marked forever, or you'll put your faith, your hope in Jesus. You'll believe in the one man who stood in your place, who took on your punishment. And if you do, like Israel, you'll be spared. You'll be spared. 
Those are the only choices you have. It's binary. It's one or the other. So which will it be? I want to beg you today to pass through the door of hope that God offers you through his son, through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful, uh, Lord, even in a story like this, we can uh, be in awe of who you are, Lord, that you are just and that you are holy, uh, Lord, and that you are totally unlike us. And, and Lord, I, I confess that there are so many ways in which I fall short, Lord, and, and I, I pray, Lord, that uh, through your spirit and through this community, uh, let me and everyone else here, Lord, that we would grow in looking like being conformed into the image of your son, uh, Lord, I also pray that as we do that, as we think about our sin, Lord, as we ask for forgiveness, as we confess, uh, Lord, as we lay our sins bare in front of each other, Lord, I, I pray also that we would receive forgiveness for you, from you, and also, Lord, I, I pray that we'd be able to walk in the forgiveness that you've given us, Lord, knowing that you have washed our guilt away. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit to remind us of all of those things and to empower us in all those things. So it's in his name we pray, amen. <laughs>